that state of blessedness in this life, which our Lord Jesus promised us, it seems we are not experiencing it as abundantly as we could be and should be. We feel that sometimes in ourselves, each person in his own life. We feel it sometimes when we see what's happening in our households, in our family life. And that warfare our Lord has ordered us to wage in this world, I suspect many of us are not really fully engaged in it. The wickedness of which our Lord has warned us, that still remains in us and among us, I'm concerned that we have been tolerating it and compromising with it. For many of us, the condition I'm describing has been the status quo for so long that it's hard to keep hoping that it ever will be any different, any better. What is it going to take to pry us out of complacency so that we move in and take possession of all the blessings that our Lord has promised us? What can motivate us to put on the full armor of God and fight the good fight? What will stir up in us the godly sorrow and indignation by which we will purge out corruption and be holy as he is holy? Is there anything that can work on us in those ways? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Reproof and correction from the word of God. That is what we need. That is sure to be profitable to us. So if you recognize that some of the things I just said are true of you, as they certainly are of me, then hear the word of the Lord as spoken by Joshua to the children of Israel when they were in a similar condition. Find in these words the correction that we need. Find comfort in the hope that they offer, the hope that things can be better, that we may yet enjoy the full measure of the abundant life that our Lord Jesus came here to give us. Joshua chapter 18. By Joshua and by the greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, God has blessed his people richly already. Joshua 18.1. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there. And the land was subdued before them. Israel with Joshua was in a state of great blessing. They were assembled as God's congregation under the covenant he had made with them through Moses at Mount Sinai 
They had the tabernacle, that amazing holy tent where they could worship God. There in the tabernacle, the sons of Aaron, whom God had appointed, ministered as their priests. There, the animal sacrifices were offered to God on the brazen altar. In the tabernacle was the holy place with the beautiful golden furnishings. And in the tabernacle was the veil through which only the high priest could pass into the most holy place, the holy of holies. In there, in that most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant, containing the law, the Ten Commandments, which Israel had received and broken. Covering that Ark was the Kapareth, the golden atonement cover, or mercy seat, or in the Greek, the Hilasterion, or propitiation, sprinkled with the blood of bulls once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Israelites under Joshua were assembled as God's congregation. They had the tabernacle, and their enemies were subdued before them. Under Joshua, the fortified city of Jericho miraculously was destroyed. Joshua set an ambush for the men of Ai, so that when they thought they were winning, at that moment, their city was being destroyed. Under Joshua, the sun even stood still while Israel avenged themselves on the Amorites. Now we Christians, with our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, are in a state of even greater blessing than was Israel. We are assembled into congregations under the much better new covenant, which God has made with us through Jesus Christ. The Lord has made us willing to be gathered and settled in a church state. And many old congregations, having been too severely corrupted, he has established these new congregations, which we call Reformed Baptist. Reformed, according to the form we see in the scriptures. And God's people now are not one congregation of just 12 tribes, one nation in one place, but instead are many congregations from many tribes and nations all over the world. And the congregations represented here this evening, of which we are members, even have the blessing of being organized into an association. We Christians have not the tabernacle, but all that the tabernacle represented, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Israel had only the priesthood of Aaron's sons. But we have the priesthood of the great high priest of a higher order, Jesus Christ, who always lives to make intercession for us. Israel had only animal sacrifices, the blood of which could never take away sins. But we have Jesus Christ, 
the Lamb of God who offered himself a sacrifice to God to take away the sins of the world. Israel had that veil as the entrance to the most holy place, but only the high priest could go in. Now, in Jesus Christ, we have a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, so that we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Israel had a propitiation covering the Ark of the Covenant, but it was made merely of pure gold and sprinkled only with the blood of bulls. We have the propitiation of Jesus Christ himself in his blood. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead, has won even greater victories for us than did Joshua because he has subdued the powerful enemies of our soul. When Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, the sun was darkened while he dealt with our sins, taking God's wrath upon himself in our stead. While the body of Jesus lay buried, the devil and his demons, seeming to have won, really were only set up for their destruction. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the walls of death and the grave came tumbling down. By our great Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has blessed us richly already. Yet many of us do not possess all the blessings that are our right in Jesus Christ. Joshua 18.2 And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. In the case of Israel under Joshua, each tribe in Israel had the right to a share in the promised land of Canaan. Some of the tribes had received their inheritance, but most of the tribes had not yet received theirs. They were not yet in possession of it. Now they needed that land. The manna from heaven had stopped when they crossed the Jordan into Canaan. So to feed themselves, they needed to farm. To raise their crops and their livestock, they'd have to possess their land. And that land was the blessing that was God's provision for them and for their children and for their grandchildren. Now they knew that the fruit of the land was very good. God had told them that it was flowing with milk and honey, and the spies had brought back a cluster of grapes so big, two men carried it on a pole between them. They were very close to their land, Back when Israel had been in slavery in Egypt, their inheritance in the promised land had seemed impossibly far away. But God had led them out of slavery by his mighty hand. By Moses, God had brought them out of bondage, leading them through the Red Sea on dry ground. 
And then by Joshua, God had led them across the Jordan River on dry ground, bringing them right into the promised land. They were very close to their land, yet they were not yet in possession of it. In our case, the congregations of the saints under Jesus Christ, we have the right to share in the rich blessings of God's grace. But many of us are not actually in possession of them. We need those blessings for ourselves and for our children and our grandchildren. We know that the promised blessings are very good. God has told us that the knowledge of his word is sweeter than honey. We read that God has anointed Christ with the oil of gladness and has promised in him to comfort those who mourn with the oil of joy. We've seen some Christians obviously bearing large clusters of the fruit of the Spirit. Very evident in them are large measures of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. We've seen some households living at peace with one another, obviously genuinely happy. And the promised blessings are very close to us. When we were still in bondage to sin, we were aliens to the promised blessings. But now that God has led us out of that bondage, and we're with our great Joshua, we are very close to all the blessings that God has promised. But many of us are painfully aware that we are not yet in full possession of them. By our great Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has blessed us richly already, yet many of us do not possess all the blessings that are our right in Jesus Christ. And our Joshua reproves us for that with a question that stings. Joshua 18, verse 3. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? How long are ye slack? Or maybe, maybe the Bible in your lap says, How long will you neglect this? Or how long will you put this off? The word slack from the old versions strikes very close to the meaning of the Hebrew word. So for this evening, let's use that, slack. How long are ye slack? In today's culture, a person might say something very much like that. How long are you going to keep slacking off? How long are you going to be a slacker? So what does the Bible mean by this word slack? The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So we'll now make use of two other passages in the Bible to help us grasp what is meant here by slacking. One place in the Old Testament, one place in the New Testament. Proverbs 
18.9. Proverbs 18.9. We're turning to Proverbs 18.9 because it uses the same Hebrew word in such a way that the context really helps understand what's meant by it. The Hebrew word rapha is used right here in this proverb. Proverbs 18.9. He also that is slothful, right there is our same Hebrew word, slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster or destroyer. See in this proverb that being slothful or slack refers to being slack in your work. Now, when talking of justification in God's sight, it's right for us to renounce our own work and trust ourselves entirely to the work of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about that. By grace are ye saved through faith, not of works. We already recited that together earlier. But when talking of sanctification, we understand ourselves to be created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. See also in this proverb the relationship between being slack and wasting or destroying or ruining. The proverb says that one who is slack is brother to one who wastes or destroys or ruins. Now we understand, obviously, how bad it is for someone actually to destroy something good that we need to use. The police officers need their patrol cars to transport them around to do their official duties. We've seen videos of rioters getting together and turning over a police car, dousing it with gasoline and setting it on fire. Destroying it. Ruining it. But think how being slothful or neglectful or slack is akin to that and produces the same result. Say someone has a car and he doesn't do anything actively to destroy it, but he just doesn't maintain it. He doesn't change the oil or even check the oil doesn't make sure that there's coolant in the radiator, doesn't check the tires or rotate the tires or get new tires, well, before long, either because the engine is ruined or because the tires are flat, a car won't go. And it'll be useless for transportation just as if it had been destroyed. So being slack about something is akin to destroying it, especially in that the results are similar. Revelation 3, the verses that Brother Price read a few minutes ago. Revelation 3. And if you turn to this, then you might stay here in Revelation 3 while I refer to it with you more than once. Revelation 3 now, this familiar passage in the New Testament has the same concept that we're working with from Joshua, being slack. It's then expressed in other terms. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. 
I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Lord Jesus was speaking to one of the congregations of the saints, but think of how that really is is well-spoken to the congregation of Israel in the time of Joshua. The tribes in Israel that had not yet taken possession of their inheritance were not cold toward toward it like their fathers had been. The generation of their fathers had refused even to enter the land once the spies reported that there were Anakim there, giants like Goliath. Yet they were not hot for their land either, like Caleb was. Caleb said, Give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakim were there. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel, and Caleb drove out the sons of Anak. So Joshua saying, how long are ye slack, means just about the same thing as Jesus Christ saying, you are lukewarm. Lukewarm is a figure of speech, of course. What does it mean literally? So Revelation chapter 3 again, down at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The problem is that they are lacking heat, and so they're lukewarm. That's figurative. Literally, they are lacking zeal. So the saying of Joshua, how long are ye slack, refers to being slack or slothful in your work, which then produces the same results as actually destroying. And the saying, how long are ye slack, refers to essentially the same thing as you are lukewarm, which means lacking in zeal. I continue to speak to you some more about understanding what is meant here by slack. Consider what it means to be slack in light of the fact that Jesus Christ, our great Joshua, has never been slack. Think of it. When he was only 12 years old, he already was sitting with the doctors in the temple, astonishing them with his understanding of the scriptures. How did he explain that to his mother? He said, I must be about my father's business. Remember that near the beginning of his public ministry, when he came into the temple and saw it corrupted... He made a scourge and drove out the corruption. The Bible says that Jesus did that in great zeal for the house of God. Near the end of his ministry, when the time had come for him to do 
his great work, that is to suffer and die for our sins, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Or, as Isaiah prophesied, our Lord Jesus set his face like a flint. Even now, as our Lord Jesus sits in glory, the throne of heaven at the right hand of God the Father, he is not slack. Our great Joshua promised us he would come again to take us to be with him and to judge the world in righteousness. He has not come back these 2,000 years now, but the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our Lord Jesus is not slack. He is not a slacker. He has not been slacking. But Joshua knew that some of the tribes of Israel had been slacking. God had given them the land. Joshua had led them right to it. They simply were being slack in doing the work it took to take possession of it. They were lukewarm or lacking the zeal to drive the Anakim out of the land. And many of us here are not enjoying the promised blessings that are our right in Jesus Christ simply because we have been slack. For that, our Lord Jesus reproves us in love. Revelation 3.19, again, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. By our great Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has blessed us richly already. Yet many of us do not possess all the blessings that are our right in Jesus Christ. So in love, our great Joshua reproves us for this with a stinging question, how long are ye slack? Our Joshua also corrects us, instructing us what we need to do. Since we have seen that our Lord Jesus was addressing essentially the same problem with the lukewarm church that Joshua was with Israel, hear what he has told us to do if we realize we've been slack. Still Revelation 3.19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The first thing is, is, is to be zealous. If you are lacking in zeal, the obvious thing, which if we weren't so dull could go without saying, but sometimes we are so dull, and so the Lord Jesus said it, be zealous. Learn about zeal from the examples in the Bible. It's a very important topic. It might have been one you haven't given much attention. 
Learn about zeal. Learn from our Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Learn from Caleb, whom I just mentioned. Learn from Epaphras. Go read Colossians chapter 4 sometime and read about Epaphras agonizing for the congregations in prayer because of his zeal for them. Now take care to be zealous for what our Lord has commanded and promised, not just for whatever you imagine or whatever's popular. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge. We don't want mere enthusiasm. Be zealous and repent. To be lukewarm, lacking in zeal, to be slack in the work of possessing what God has promised us, is sin to be repented of. What is it that our Lord Jesus commanded to be preached in his name? Repentance and remission of sins. There is forgiveness from God in the blood of Jesus Christ for those who have been slack and lukewarm, but who now repent of it. So if you have been slack, lukewarm, repent in the name of Jesus Christ and be forgiven. What did John the Baptist say that men should do then when they have repented? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. At this point, I'm going to turn back to Joshua 18 and verse 4. We can take up right there where our Lord Jesus has said, be zealous, and has said, repent. And we know then that repenting, we should produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Joshua tells us what to do. Joshua 18, 4. Give out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them, and they shall come again to me. To Israel that day long ago, Joshua said that their chosen men should come to him, and he would send them. Joshua said that they should rise and go survey the promised land to know what it was, that they should return to him, for him to assign their land and send them in to conquer it. Here in those words, what we should do. Ask the Lord to help you. Come to Jesus about it. Then rise and go find out what that blessedness is that is promised. And come again to Jesus for it to be granted to you. Now apply this to yourself. Each of you, as an individual disciple of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that Christians can possess a good conscience, but it may be that you are not 
yet fully in possession of a good conscience? If not, how long are ye slack in doing the work of gaining a good conscience? Having a good conscience, put very simply, is knowing what is true and false, what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And then, speaking what you know is true, doing what you know is right, shunning what you know is evil. But the world is trying very hard to keep you from having a good conscience. The world tells you everything false as if it were true, everything wrong as if it were right. It tells you that boys might be girls, that virginity might be just a social construct, that unborn babies may rightly be killed at the discretion of the parents. Then the world tells you that you should believe in things even if you don't know they're true or even if you know they're not true. Then the world tells you that nothing you say is wrong except if you say that what somebody else says is wrong. The world tells you that nothing you do is wrong unless it is somewhat different from what the world is doing. If your conscience is weak because of such influences, and up until now you have been slack about it, what should you do? Become zealous for having a good conscience. Repent and be forgiven for slacking regarding your conscience. Pray that the Lord Jesus will help you. Then rise and go find out what the Bible says about having a good conscience. I stated it very briefly. There's much more richness to that. Ask your pastors. Ask other mature Christians about having a good conscience. And then again, pray to the Lord that he will help you to possess a good conscience. Then take possession of that conscience. Drive the Anakim out of your conscience. Cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Replace them with the truth of the word of God. Then you will know what the will of God is. Making that your constant practice, you will rightly discern good from evil. Then knowing what's good and evil, mortify the evil desires of the flesh. Put them to death. So that instead of walking by the flesh, you walk by the Spirit. So that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then when you know what is true and what is right, and you act accordingly, consistently, you will be in possession of a good conscience. From that good conscience, then, the fruit of the Spirit is produced. There, of course, is much more application of this to every individual Christian. But I've put that to you so you can see how what I'm reading to you tonight from the scriptures and this question and this rebuke and this instruction can apply 
to a number of things in your individual Christian life. Apply this to yourselves as members of your family or household. Husbands and fathers, you have the right to occupy a good place that God has given you. But it may be that you have never really known or understood where your inheritance is. The Bible says that you have the right to rule over your household. You can read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you find that your Bible says that a man should manage his household, you can blame James Moffat for that and go read a translation that says rightly that a man rules his own household. You certainly don't have the right from God to a despotic or tyrannical rule over your household, but as God has ordered it, the husband and father has the right and the duty to possess the position of ruler over his household. If you have been slack in that, become zealous for what is your rightful possession. Repent of your neglect and be forgiven for it. Pray that the Lord Jesus will help you understand Then rise and go learn what it is for a man to rule his household well. Read what the Bible says. Ask your pastors. Ask the other older, more experienced men. Ask any younger men that seem to be getting it right. And pray to the Lord Jesus some more that he will help you do it. Then go fight the giants that are trying to keep you out of your possession. Nearly the whole popular culture, including almost everything on TV and in the movie theater, is fighting against you to keep you out of your promised inheritance. But you need to be in that place to provide what your family needs. You would be willing to fight off, say, criminals who are trying to harm your family. So fight off the evil forces at work in the popular culture that are trying to keep you out of your God-given place in the household. Wives, mothers, you have the right to a good place that God has given you. The place God has given you as your inheritance is a blessed place. It's a sweet place in which you can be truly happy yourself. And it is a fertile place in which your efforts can produce giant clusters of good fruit for your family. But it may be that you have never really known or understood where your rightful place is. The Bible says that your place is under your husband and over your children. Isn't that fitting? It puts you right in the middle of your family. But isn't it sinister that the world is not slack about trying to convince you that your place is over your husband and under your children? If you have been slack 
in taking possession of that special place in the family under your husband and over your children. Become zealous for it. Repent of being lukewarm about it and be forgiven. Pray that the Lord will help you. Study to understand what it means to reverence your husband and call him your master, to submit to your husband and obey him. Study to understand what it means for your children to obey you, to do what you say when you say it because you said it. Then pray to the Lord some more that he will help you take possession of your rightful place in the household. There are enemies that will fight to keep you out of the blessed place God has given you for your inheritance. And those enemies are not lightweights either. They are giants. One of the giants that will fight to keep you out of the promised possession is feminism. It would keep you from being under your husband so that you would try to be over him. You must drive it out. Your place is in submission to your husband. Let nothing keep you out of that place, which is your rightful possession. Another of the giants that will fight to keep you out of your promised possession is foolishness in the heart of your child. It's tantrums and screams would keep you from being over your children so that they would be over you. But you must drive it out. The Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of your child, but the rod drives it out. Do not coddle that little fool, allowing him to usurp your position in the family. Spank that little would-be tyrant. Convince him he must obey you. You will not obey him. Drive that fatal foolishness far from your family. You children who are here listening, you have a place in your family which God has prepared for you. But it may be that you've never really known or understood where your place is. Your place is under your parents, by God's commandment. Your father and mother, God has placed them in authority over you. You are to be in submission under them. If you have been slack in taking your right place under your parents... Become zealous for that place that God has assigned you. Repent and be forgiven for all your disobedience toward your parents. Pray to the Lord Jesus to help you. Then rise and go find out about your rightful place in the family. Think about God's commandment to honor your father and your mother. Think about the promise that is attached to the commandment that things will go well with you. Read that in Ephesians chapter 6. Then pray some more to the Lord Jesus, that he will help you take possession of your right place in your family. 
Of course, this way of applying the words of Joshua and the words of Jesus, uh, you can use for a number of other things in your family life. And I'm not even going to try to start to go into the life of your congregation. So, Israel of God, led by our great Joshua, if you have been slack, if you have been lukewarm regarding the blessings our Lord has promised us, do not lose hope that things can get better. Receive the word spoken to you this evening, trusting that it will be profitable. In obedience to the word of the Lord, be zealous for what God has promised you. Repent and be forgiven. Pray for the Lord's help and find out what God's promised blessings actually are. See what enemies there are that you must fight. What wicked things are in your life or your family which must be driven out. Take up the spiritual weapons and wage war against them. Pray some more and take possession of what God has promised us in Jesus Christ.